Hello, my name is Leaf, and you're listening to Health Righteous. In our last episode, we talked about the relationship between honeybee die-off and almonds, and the deal with all these new plant-based burgers popping up. Now, today's episode is a very special episode, because... It's our final episode of the season! It has been a labor of love. I started this podcast to share the information that I've accumulated over my life of being health conscious or health righteous. And in researching these topics, I learned so much. I'm actually shocked at how much I learned because I thought I knew a lot, but I, nay, we now know so much more. Our podcast is moving. It's going to live on YouTube because the hosting is free. So if you haven't done so already, go to youtube.com and search for Health Righteous. Like, subscribe, and comment, and it'll help light the trail for anyone else who wants to come and try to find this podcast. My internet here in rural Washington is not fast, so it might take a couple of days before all of the episodes are up, but they will get there. Luckily, they'll be on here, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever your flavor is, until then. In this episode, I'm going to take on something that people eat every day but know very little about, and that's oils. I'm not going to lie, when I started researching this topic, I was overwhelmed There's so much to it, and I knew so very little about this topic. But I think that the subject matter here is so important because of the implications it has for virtually everyone listening. I know I've been eating a certain way and avoiding certain oils, but I needed to do the research to fully explain why. But now I can. So let's get down to it. Oils are magical. They add richness and moisture to our lives. They give our food texture and depth. They allow us to bring out qualities in foods that otherwise would lay dormant. So it's no surprise that we've gone a little crazy with oils. Americans consumed over 15 million tons of cooking oils in 2019, and those numbers are on the rise. Here's a quick rundown of how we got to where we are now with vegetable oils. Picture this. 1860s, farming America. We're growing cotton like crazy, but we're ending up with all of these extra cotton seed holes. So we have to find something to do with it. So we throw it in with the cattle feed and use it as fertilizer. 10 years later, a couple soap makers from Cincinnati, William Proctor and James Gamble, those names sound familiar, Proctor and Gamble, Rather than using traditional pork fat, they created a new kind of soap using the unwanted and inexpensive oil from the cottonseed. The 1900s roll around and we get some new science. We develop hydrogenation as a method for changing the saturation level of cottonseed oil, forming a semi-solid cooking fat. The result? Crisco. Hydrogenation happens by adding a hydrogen gas to an oil to make it more stable from oxidation and to have a longer shelf life. However, this process creates trans fats, which we'll get to in a minute. 
In the 1930s to the 1950s, we get some new vegetable oils, and the American diet molds around them. One physiologist in particular, Ansel Keys, really advocated for vegetable oils, cherry-picking data to show that foods high in saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart disease, which changed the course of the food industry. Polyunsaturated fats from vegetable oils were the new norm. In the 1960s, the American Heart Association jumped on board and echoed what Ansel said, telling people to drop saturated fats and go for the vegetable oils, and to a lesser extent, shortening and margarine. This is when soybean oil really took off. From then on, soybean oil consumption went from 4 pounds per person in the 70s to about 26 pounds per person in 1999. And my guess is that it hasn't slowed down since. Now we've got some backstory which paints the picture of why vegetable oils are in everything nowadays. Oils are a huge industry in the United States, and corporations aren't afraid to pull out every stop to make their products seem desirable to customers. For instance, on just about any brand of vegetable oil, we'll see companies claiming that their product contains heart-healthy fats. But there's a lot wrong with what they're implying here. Here's why that's not the case. There are three main culprits that can cause oils to become rancid. Light, heat, and air. When vegetable oils become rancid, they often change color and let off an odor. Think of it as nature's way of protecting us from an oil that has gone bad. This is called oxidation. When oils become oxidized, the molecules become less stable and are more prone to change shape, developing free radicals and becoming trans fats. Free radicals are an antagonist in the body. They damage your cells, proteins, and DNA. Think premature aging, cancer, and a host of other problems. For this reason, you should always make sure your oils are stored in a dark, cool place in an airtight container. Because light, heat, and air. But what if the oil you're using has already gone rancid, but it has been disguised to seem like it hasn't? Well, chances are, it has. Because things are about to get real hot. To make a commercial vegetable oil, start with the plant of your choice. We'll say soybeans. Use a petroleum-based solvent and neurotoxin called hexane to maximize the amount of oil extracted. Then once the oil has been extracted, we're going to heat it all up to remove as much of the hexane as possible. But you can't remove it all. There's going to be some residue no matter what. Then you're going to heat it back up, refine it using water and phosphoric acid. Then at a lower heat, we're going to add some more chemicals to turn some of our byproduct free fatty acids into soap and get rid of those and some other unwanted elements. Then we're going to heat that oil back up again, run it through some clay to make the color prettier. And we're not done yet. Next, we're going to throw in some more chemicals to strip away the stench and flavor. While we're at it, we could flash hydrogenate it and make some trans fats that don't appear on the label. Lastly, we might go ahead and chill it way down to remove any parts of the oil that turn solid or get cloudy in lower temperatures. And there we have it. Six easy steps that take your soybeans, canola, cotton seeds, sunflower seeds, safflower corn, or whatever else into that beautiful golden liquid on the shelf at the grocery store 
or in your favorite packaged food. Extraction, degumming, neutralizing, bleaching, deodorizing, de-waxing, aka winterizing. So what did we just put these poor seeds through? Light, heat, and air. We know that when an oil becomes oxidized, it can create trans fats. Now why does that matter? Trans fatty acid intake is estimated to be responsible for more than half a million deaths from coronary heart disease each year around the world. That's a quote from the World Health Organization. Now the way this happens is that trans fats not only raise bad cholesterol, but they also reduce good cholesterol. You've probably heard about two different types of cholesterol before. Good cholesterol is called high-density lipoprotein, or HDL, and bad cholesterol is low-density lipoprotein, or LDL. Good cholesterol. HDLs help rid your body of excess cholesterol so it's less likely to end up in your arteries. Bad cholesterol. LDL cholesterol can build up on the walls of your blood vessels as plaque. As your blood vessels build up plaque over time, the insides of the vessels narrow. This narrowing blocks blood flow to and from your heart and other organs, increasing the risk of coronary heart disease. I've seen some data on a couple different cooking methods that could create trans fats. The first is by deep frying. Here, we're heating oil up to high temperatures for cooking and then usually repeating this over and over with the same oil. Not good for the oil. The other cooking method I saw that created trans fats was in stir-frying with corn oil. I would say, if in doubt, I would recommend baking, pan-frying, or air-frying instead. Luckily, we've known about trans fats for a while, so there have been some policies in place to help regulate how much trans fats we're getting exposed to. The first discovery happened when research done in the 1970s and 1980s suggested that trans fats promoted heart disease. It wasn't until many years later, in 2002, when the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Medicine recommended that intake of artificial trans fats should be zero, that the FDA started to finally do something about it. In 2006, they made trans fat labeling mandatory on all foods in the United States. And in 2015, partially hydrogenated oil lost its status as being generally recognized as safe and we've been phasing them out ever since. But some petition cases still have gotten away with selling them. But that's supposed to end in about a year. Hydrogenated oil has been in everything, from Crisco to baked goods to pizza crusts to frosting. And when it became mandatory for companies to put trans fats on their labels, it didn't take long for these companies to find a loophole. All they had to do was change the serving sizes of their products to make the trans fat content per serving less than 0.5 grams. This way, they could round down to zero, like sneaky little sneaks, and claim their product had 0% trans fats. It is a shady, shady move. Also, some natural trans fats appear in the milk and digestive tissue of animals, so watch out for that. So that's one piece of the puzzle. We fell into the trend of using vegetable oils because good old Ansel told us that polyunsaturated fats were better for us than saturated fats. But there's another piece to this puzzle. Pay attention because it'll make a lot more sense if you do. 
Polyunsaturated fats are a combination of a couple different kinds of fats, but the ones we're going to focus on right here are the omega-6, aka linoleic acid, or LA, and the omega-3, alpha-linoleic acid, or ALA. Both of these oils are essential for human health, but in every plant we get them in different ratios. There's convincing evidence that suggests that humans evolved on a diet where a ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s was 1 to 1. But in today's Western diets, we're looking at an average ratio of 15 to 1 or 17 to 1. Western diets are hugely deficient in omega-3 fatty acids and have excessive amounts of omega-6s, which in turn promotes heart disease, cancer, and inflammatory and autoimmune diseases. When omega-3 consumption is higher, we get the opposite effect. With diets closer to a ratio of between 2 to 1 and 5 to 1, omega-6s to omega-3s, we see evidence of prevention from heart disease, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, arthritis, and asthma. Got it? All right, time for a vocabulary check. Here we go. Polyunsaturated fatty acids, or polyunsaturated fats. These are the oils that primarily occur in plants. Oxidation. When an oil breaks down from light, heat, and air, forming free radicals, which cause mutations in our cells, proteins, and DNA, and trans fats, or trans fatty acids, which narrow and clog up our arteries by lowering our good cholesterol, HDLs, and by increasing our bad cholesterol, LDLs. And in our diets, we have too much omega-6, LA, and not enough omega-3, ALA. Woo! All right, give yourself a high five. You're a star pupil, and you're really getting to the heart of why all of this matters. All right, now that we are marinating in all of that feel-good knowledge, we can learn about the stars of the show. Our very own vegetable oils, because each oil is a special snowflake. Each one has varying amounts of polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and indeed, saturated fats. Not just for animal sources, folks. They've also got their own combinations of omega-6s and omega-3s. You know I'm going to keep this info fun and relevant, but before we dive in, let's take one last commercial break for old time's sake. Today's sponsor is me. I started this podcast to share my knowledge about the things that matter to me when it comes to making health-conscious decisions. I believe that everyone should have the tools to make their best decisions to reduce harm from their lives so they get the best chance at living a long, happy one. Even if we're just making a difference in the life of one person who listens to this podcast, that, to me, is worthwhile. This podcast is currently a solo project, and it's pretty resource and time-consuming. So if you believe in what I'm doing, or you just want to pick up some tips about how to add some health righteousness to your everyday life, follow Health Righteous on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or visit our website. Just type Health Righteous, all one word, into your browser, and drop a dot before the US. I thought that was a clever domain. And if this podcast means something to you, share it with somebody. Share it with somebody who you want to see live a health-righteous life. And lastly, if you want to help me make this podcast sustainable, visit our Patreon 
patreon.com slash healthrighteous. Any amount that you can contribute, even if it's just a few dollars, will help secure the resources we need to make this podcast something I can feasibly continue. Let's spread the gospel. All right, back to the show. Welcome back. Let's break it down with some of the oils we're ingesting every day. First up is our cash crop, our number one, our MVP. Not not my MVP. <laughs> Somebody else, the, our country maybe, I don't know, I don't like that. Soy, if this episode is your first time at the rodeo, you missed out on all of the ways we use soy in our food system. If our primary use for soy is to feed livestock, our secondary use has got to be for creating food oil. As of September 2019, according to the USDA, 94% of the soy we grow in the United States has been genetically modified to tolerate herbicides, produce insecticides, or both. This is a bad news baby for so many reasons, from environmental destruction to cancer-causing effects, the herbicides, to the effect that it all has on our gut biome. If you want all the juice on that, I'd check out the first episode of Health Righteous on our YouTube channel. Health Righteous. Any hoozle, we've gone over the way that oils like soy are refined and treated so that the product we end up with is oxidized and all kinds of bad for us. Now, soybean oil is about 7.5 to 1 on the omega-6s to omega-3s and is shown to harm our liver function. I would say soy as an oil should be avoided completely. But if you're going to consume soy in any other form, make sure it's organic so you're getting something that's safer on your body. I personally have removed soy from my diet and it has made a huge difference in the clarity of my skin. So for me, it wasn't a match. It can cause some inflammation. Next, canola. We talked about canola in our first episode as well. So go back there and give it a listen on our YouTube channel. We talked about how canola is a hybrid of different kinds of rapeseed plants that have been bred to have lower amounts of erucic acid, which has been shown to have toxic effects on the heart of animals in high enough doses. It was rebranded to be called canola because it lands a little softer on the ears. Canola is going to be just as processed and therefore not good for you as soy, so this is definitely on my do not consume list as well. Cottonseed oil is likely one of the worst you can consume. It's a byproduct of the cotton crop that's inundated with pesticides and chemicals and is commonly used in cattle feed. Cotton farming also raises ethical concerns, especially in Indian farmers that get sick from the pesticides and countless others that have committed suicide after the expensive GMO seeds they used failed. Cottonseed oil is at the bottom of the barrel. Sunflower and safflower are a couple other oils that are often extracted with hexane and are high in omega-6 fatty acids. Now, there's actually two other ways that oil can be extracted from vegetable sources, and those are by being expeller-pressed or by using centrifugal force in a centrifuge. It makes me think of that carnival ride, the Gravitron. It was actually my favorite. One oil that's not afraid to ride in the Gravitron is extra virgin olive oil. Extra virgin olive oil, or EVOO, EVU, is crushed into a paste, kneaded or malaxed, 
and then centrifuged to separate the oil from the water and the olive solids. This process is typically done at relatively low heat, especially in comparison to the other popular vegetable oils. What makes EVOO so special is that it's produced entirely by mechanical means without the use of any solvents, and under temperatures that will not degrade the oil. Only the highest quality olive oils meet this most expensive olive oil classification of bearing the title Miss Extra Virgin. Whatever doesn't meet these standards is then refined and made more palatable and sold as pure, light, or simply olive oil. Some features that make olive oil so special are it has naturally occurring antioxidants, which actually protect the body against free radical damage, and it also has some anti-inflammatory benefits. You might think of olive oil, Mediterranean food, the Mediterranean diet, but it's important to look at the Mediterranean diet studies as exactly what they are, observational. They don't have the same level of control that clinical trials have, so there's a lot of room for interpretation. Many scientists look at the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet as being attributable to a diet high in olive oil, but another aspect worth considering that is commonly neglected is that aside from some fish, the diet is largely plant-based, which has been proven to promote a number of health benefits. Either way, when compared against the rest, extra virgin olive oil definitely ranks toward the top of healthful oils, even though its omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is close to 13 to 1. I would say use it, but don't go crazy. Now, the last way that oils are extracted is by expeller pressing them. This traditional way of making oil is much healthier than using hexane, but the big oil manufacturers don't like this method because it's less effective in terms of volume extracted, and it's more expensive. The expeller pressing process can cause a lot of heat, usually up to 200 or 210 degrees Fahrenheit, which causes you to lose some of the nutritional value, so some companies take it one step farther and cold press their oils at temperatures of no more than 80 degrees to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, which is labor-intensive but produces the best oils. Although the term cold-pressed is regulated in Europe, it's not very well regulated in the United States, so cold-pressed just tends to mean it didn't reach 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Be aware of the oils at supermarkets that claim their product is first cold-pressed in the label. Yet in the ingredients list, it's clearly specified that the first component is refined oil. That is why when trying to buy a healthy oil, it's always important for us to look for words such as unrefined, directly from whatever seed that you're buying, or extra virgin in the ingredient list. These will have the least amount of heat and chemical processing. Another thing to look out for is that many vegetable oils contain BHA and BHT butylated hydroxyanisole and butylated hydroxytoluene. These artificial antioxidants keep the food from spoiling too quickly, but they have also been shown to produce potential cancer compounds in the body. And they have been linked to things like immune system issues, infertility, behavioral problems, and liver and kidney damage. So Leaf, what oils do you recommend? Well, I'm glad you asked. For cooking, I'll probably use extra virgin olive oil, 
But for everything else, the oils that I'm most excited to stock up on are flaxseed and hempseed, and maybe macadamia nut. Flax oil has an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of close to 1 to 4, which is the only oil that I've seen that has a higher ratio of omega-3s than omega-6s, aside from fish oil, which can be up to 1 to 20. I see why people take fish oil supplements now. But you're probably not going to want to cook with cod liver oil very often, so I would go for flaxseed or hempseed. Hempseed is 3 to 1 or 2 to 1, which is another one of the highest in omega-3 concentration, and it touts anti-inflammatory, cardiovascular and immune system benefits, and antioxidants and micronutrients. Not to mention, it's the most sustainable crop you can grow. And lastly, there's macadamia nut oil that's a 1 to 1 ratio. So with these oils, it's important to make sure to protect ones that appear greenish in color from light by storing them in a dark cabinet or pantry, because they have a higher quantity of chlorophyll and are therefore more sensitive to oxidation from light exposure. But there's a couple oils that I haven't mentioned yet, and those ones are some of the most controversial. When the FDA started labeling trans fats and phasing out the use of hydrogenated oil, big business needed something cheap that could take its place. And before we knew it, we had a huge surge in palm oil. Palm oil trees are native to Africa, but were brought to Southeast Asia just over 100 years ago as an ornamental tree crop. Now Indonesia and Malaysia make up over 85% of global supply, but there are 42 other countries that also produce palm oil. It's the most productive oil crop per hectare by nearly five times. It's in nearly half of the packaged products we find in supermarkets, everything from pizza, donuts, and chocolate to deodorant, shampoo, and toothpaste and lipstick. It's also used in animal feed and as a biofuel in many parts of the world, but not in the UK. Palm oil is high in saturated fat, which makes it semi-solid at room temperature, giving it that viscous, butter-like texture that hydrogenated oils were previously providing. It's also resistant to oxidation and can give products a longer shelf life and it's stable at high temperatures and gives fried products a crispy and crunchy texture. And once it's been processed, it's odorless and colorless so it doesn't alter the look or smell of food products. There are two different parts of the plant that you can extract oil from. The fruit and the kernel. Crude palm oil from the fruit tends to be lower in saturated fat than palm kernel oil. In addition to the heavy processing used to refine palm oil, sometimes an additional step of fractionating the palm oil is enlisted, in which they'll bring the palm oil to low, freezing temperatures. And since the oil's triglycerides react at different temperatures, the oil fractions into liquid and solid components, and they separate them to get just the part they want. Since palm oil is commonly sought out for its density, I think it's safe to assume most fractionated palm oil will use the most saturated fat heavy portion when used in most processed foods. I have, however, seen the opposite as true with coconut oil before, where the fractionated oil that's being sold is only the liquid. It's no secret that palm oil agriculture is largely problematic, from poorly enforced global worker protections and child labor to the devastating massive destruction of critical habitats for endangered species like the orangutan, pygmy elephant, and the Sumatran rhino. This deforestation coupled with carbon-rich peat soils 
is throwing out millions of tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and accelerating climate change. But as a buyer, you have options. You can do what I always recommend, and that's vote with your dollar. The Roundtable of Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO, was formed in 2004 in response to increasing concerns about the impacts palm oil was having on the environment and on society. The RSPO represents the largest independent third-party standard for the more sustainable production of palm oil. Certified palm oil protects the environment and the local communities who depend on it for their livelihoods, so that palm oil can continue to play a key role in food security. In November 2018, the RSPO standard was strengthened, and it now represents an essential tool that can help companies achieve their commitments to palm oil that is free of deforestation, expansion on peat, exploitation, and the use of fire. There's an app you can download called Sustainable Palm Oil Shopping that lets you scan a product, and it'll tell you if it's RSPO certified. I just downloaded it. There's also a web tool through the World Wildlife Fund that gives you a scorecard for retailers and brand names so you can see who to support. Read labels. It's important. And lastly, the other controversial oil that I'm going to talk about is coconut oil. Now, this one isn't controversial for the same reasons as palm oil. It's just been on a crazy ride over the last few years. Is it a health food? Is it dangerous? What's the deal? Well, as has been the case with a lot of the information regarding fats and oils, it's about as cloudy as a jar of coconut oil at room temperature. The main redeeming qualities that I've seen about coconut oil are from the medium-chain triglycerides, or MCTs, that make up over half of the fat in the oil. If you've looked into a ketogenic diet or have heard of bulletproof coffee, MCT oil has quite the reputation. There's been a fair amount of research on it, but because the trend is still fairly new, the science isn't completely solid on it. But either way, here are some of the potential benefits of it. MCT oil is said to promote weight loss by increasing the hormones that make you feel full. Although the opposite has also occurred in trials where hunger hormones were released. It can improve the gut flora, making for more effective digestion, aiding weight loss. It acts as an instant source of energy and has fewer calories than long-chain triglycerides in other foods like olive oil, nuts, and avocado. MCTs are also great at turning into ketones if you're on a ketogenic diet. And a ketogenic diet can help manage epilepsy, Alzheimer's disease, and autism. And if you're an athlete, they can reduce the amount of lactic acid in your muscles during your workout. It could help reduce risk factors for heart disease by encouraging weight loss and by reducing LDL and increasing HDL cholesterol levels. And it could help control blood sugar levels and support diabetes management. But watch out because high doses could lead to fat buildup in the liver. Coconut oil also has some other practical uses like oil pulling to whiten teeth and improve oral health, and as a skin and hair moisturizer. On a side note, Coconut Oil is also the album that made me fall in love with Lizzo. <laughs> I thought I wanted to run to find somebody to love, but all I needed was some coconut oil. There's one last piece of the oil puzzle that I want to throw out there, and that's the smoke point. Each oil is special and has its own tolerance for heat. Some oils like to stay cool and hang out in foods that aren't heated, and some are great for high temperatures. 
At the top of the list for heat tolerant oils, you've got avocado oil at up to 520 degrees Fahrenheit. And then oils like rice bran oil and ghee or clarified butter, which both fall right under 500 degrees. Then you work your way down the list with a lot of refined and processed oils and land at butter and coconut oil that fall in the mid-range, and then our cool friends like unrefined flaxseed oil, unrefined sunflower oil, and unrefined safflower oil that are at the low end at about 225. Once an oil hits its smoke point, it can produce volatile compounds, including lipid peroxides that may increase risk of lung cancer and bladder cancer, according to a 2011 molecular nutrition and food research study. Counterintuitively, smoke point does not correlate with the timing when the oil starts to break down or lose stability, according to Selena Wang, a research director at the University of California Davis Olive Center. While olive oil has a moderate smoke point of around 350 to 410, its stability may be due to its high level of antioxidants as well as monounsaturated fats. Extra virgin olive oil is actually the most stable oil when heated. Coconut and other virgin oils such as avocado followed close behind. Oxidative stability, not smoke point, is the best predictor of how an oil behaves during cooking which is measured by how long an oil can last at certain temperatures before oxidizing. And as I'm sure is just implied at this point, whatever oil you're choosing, opt for organic whenever possible. It's better for you, better for the workers, and it's better for the environment. It's worth it, and it's a great habit to get in. And that's about it. That covers all of the oil-related information that you could hopefully ever want to know. And since this is the last episode of the season, I want to say thank you. Thank you for riding this ride with me. Getting vegetated. Learning a new way to look at the world around us. There's one guy on Instagram that really helps put a lot of this into perspective that I recommend following as I'm constantly picking up tips from him. And his Instagram is Flav City or Flav City. F-L-A-V-C-I-T-Y. He also has a website. I'm actually going to try making one of his brownie recipes for Valentine's Day. He's got great stuff. I definitely would recommend it. Also, I know I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but these episodes are going away, at least from the podcast sites, because I don't want to pay for hosting indefinitely. But they will live forever on YouTube. So if you missed one of the first ones, or you want to go back and squeeze more information out of an episode, head there. Just search for Health Righteous on YouTube. The most recent thing that I've been caught up on is something I heard about in a longevity web seminar, and it's this concept of hormesis. This web seminar actually had a ton of information in it, but it's not free anymore. You have to pay for it but it's probably worth the money. I listened to the first couple days of it and it was really cool to hear about what our best tools to slow down aging are. The website for this is theartofantiaging.com. But the thing that I've been trying to actively implement is called hormesis. And basically what it means is when your body faces an acute stress that triggers a survival type of response like hunger or a cold shower or a hot sauna, it can actually stimulate positive effects. Ever wonder where the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, comes from? Hint, it's not from Kelly Clarkson. It's talking about hormesis, 
It's wild, but basically being comfortable in life is working against our ability to live for a long time. So I've been taking cold showers, eating during a specific window in my day, and hanging in the sauna whenever I get the chance. It's pretty fascinating stuff, and I recommend looking into it. Oh, and Valentine's Day is coming up, so make sure that the chocolate you're buying is fair trade certified. So it's not from child labor. There's an app for that one too. The Food Empowerment Project made it, it's called Chocolate List. I used it a couple days ago when I was at Costco. If you learned something in this episode and you want to share it with someone, pass this podcast along to your friends, your family, your Reiki healer, your florist, your famous friend, your production assistant, your people that you only know from Twitter, and the person you hang out with out of obligation, but always find yourself appreciating in hindsight. Literally anyone who's made your life interesting that you want to have the best shot at living a long, healthy life. Consider becoming a patron. I'm currently accepting patrons on Patreon and sponsorship of many kinds, and who knows? Maybe if I receive some sort of grant or something, I could find a way to continue to grow this project. I want to thank everyone who has contributed to Health Righteous, Brian Bagley being my most recent donor. Your support really showed me that there's someone on the other end that listens and believes in what I'm doing. Y'all have been great! I'm grateful for you. Maybe I'll see you next season. In the meantime, this has been Health Righteous Health Righteous We love it! Health Righteous <laughs>